You are listening to a message by Travis Scott from our gatherings at Shorebreak. Visit shorebreakchurch.com to get connected with more content. And if you would like to support the gospel being preached in Kona and to thousands online, your tax-deductible donation enables us to further Jesus' mission. Partner with us by giving at shorebreakchurch.com backslash give. Mahalo. Morning, guys. Blessed to be here this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. I've never been introduced by a video before. It's kind of cool. I don't know. I feel high-tech or something. And uh, like Travis said, he and I met a few months ago. It's been neat getting to hear all the things that the Lord's been doing here. Uh, Love Travis. We've had coffee a couple times and just enjoy fellowshipping with him. Uh, And as he said, I've uh, been pastoring over in in Honoka'a is the town we're in. It's Calvary Chapel Hamakua, which is the name of the district we're in. And uh, we've been there for 10 years. When the Lord called us out, it was interesting because we just kind of went, oh, okay, this is the district of Hamakua, and, and so it'll be Calvary Chapel Hamakua. But what we didn't know at that time is that uh, what Hamakua means, that ha is the Hawaiian word for breath, and makua is the one all-powerful God. So it's Calvary Chapel of the breath of God, and we'll take that. That's pretty cool. Um, Philippians chapter 4. kind of an odd place, of course, for you guys to jump in because it's the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians. The letter is different than some of Paul's letters. Uh, Actually, it's very similar in some ways to Ephesians. Paul writes this letter not with the idea of correction, but of encouragement, whereas Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Romans, other letters are very firm in correction that needs to take place. Philippians is a letter that he's writing this to his friends. He loves these people. They, they've been with him since the beginning, you know, and, and part of his ministry, and they've encouraged him over and over again. And so it's a very encouraging letter, just like Ephesians, that you can't help but read it. And you're like, yeah, right on. You get fired up for the Lord and excited about what he's doing. And Paul's concluding this letter of encouragement um, to them and, again, throwing out some very encouraging things. But as I studied through this chapter, what I found it did for me is that while I looked at it and I love the encouragement, I'm like, yeah, you know, I I, I need to hear these things and I'm so built up. It also caused me to see these points of encouragement he throws out as like mile markers. Those things that we judge and gauge our, our distance and our travel by, right? And and that's really how it's supposed to be. That we hear from the word of God. And we take in the information, which is good. The Word of God is meant to be informative. It it shows us the character and the person of Jesus Christ. It teaches us not only about Him, but it teaches us about ourselves and and what we're what's wrong with us. You know that we are in are in desperate need of a Savior, and we are in desperate need of the work that He wants to do in us. We see how far He's brought us, and that's really what the the mile markers are, is that we can look back and go, well, this is where I was, and and this is kind of the area He's brought me to, but at the same time, we're challenged because we see how much further we need to go, how much further He wants to take us, right? 
I was just talking with Doug before this and, and how we all have this tendency to, to kind of get in ruts and, and just kind of cruise. We, we get in a comfortable place in every a- aspect of our life, including our faith, and we're like, yeah, I'm doing good, doing all right. And it's one of the things I love about the letter to the Philippians because they were doing good. They were doing all right. Paul isn't writing to correct them. Paul isn't writing to say, hey, you guys are out of line here, man. You need to change some things. He's telling them, you guys are awesome. You guys are doing so good. But you know what? There's more. There's more. There's a deeper walk than what you've got right now. You've got a good one, but there's more. And so for us, while the Word of God is to inform, it is also to transform. We can't just take in the knowledge. We can't just take in the facts and the ideas and the concepts and the theology. We need to let it transform us. It's the power of the Holy Spirit applying the Word of God to our lives, showing us those mile markers, going, look, that's where you were. Look at how far I brought you. And we go, yeah. And he goes, ah, oh, but there's so much more ahead. I want to transform your life. He wants to conform us into the likeness of his image. And in chapter 4 of Philippians, I believe it is a major transforming chapter. Just uh, a joy for me to study, joy for me when I got to teach it in my church. And so that's my prayer today, that we're going to not just take in information, but we're going to be transformed. Amen? So let's pray one more time. Lord Jesus, we pray you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us even now to a greater measure than what we expect or think is possible. Lord, that you would transform us by the power of your word, that you'd show us each individually those things that you want to work on next, and and Lord, that we would lay our lives down, we would lay our wills down at your feet, let you have your will in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, verse 1. Philippians chapter 4 says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore you, Dora, and I implore Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, to help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. Now, just that first section there, has so many quotable verses in it. So many things that, you know, you see on the little scripture encouragement cards and birthday cards, all kinds of things. And, and we go, oh, I, yeah, I recognize that verse. I remember that. But keep in mind, Paul starts off this section by saying, therefore. And whenever, he, of course, we see that, it, it's they're pointing to back on what they were just saying. The end of chapter 3, Paul was speaking about those that live for this world, those that try and build their kingdoms here. And certainly pointing towards the false teachers and and the legalists, those that really aren't out for people's good. They're out for their own kingdom. But we also have to be careful we're not being drawn into that same thing, trying to build our own kingdom here. And so Paul exhorts and tells them and tells us, hey, the Lord's return is, is soon. He's coming back. 
and that we need to, rather than build our kingdoms here, we need to be investing in heaven and looking for the Lord's soon return. That the day will come when all of this world and everything in it fades like that. And the only thing that will remain is his kingdom. And so where shall we invest? What should we stand upon? And it's with that in mind that Paul says, Now, thinking about that, therefore, stand fast. Be immovable. Be unshakable in your faith. And it's important we understand that he's saying, In your faith, in the Lord, be steadfast in the Lord. He's not just saying be stubborn to be stubborn. And, and certainly, I think some of us, me in particular, can be stubborn. I, I, you know, I, the idea of, oh, yeah, be immovable, be unshakable. It's like, to me, I justify it, and I don't like to admit that I'm wrong. I'm unshakable, right? And then Paul's not saying that. He just, he's saying that when it comes to the things of faith, don't be shaken. When it comes to those things where people are trying to get you to build your kingdom here, don't buy into it. Be immovable. Stand fast. And therefore, you know, he he moves on, and he's not really changing subjects. Again, he's talking about the idea of doing the things that matter for eternity. And he comes to what I believe is the, the first mile marker. And there's a, there's a lot of different ways that we could go, and so I'm not going to be touching on absolutely every point that we could see as a, a mile marker in our lives or in our Christian walk. But the first one here is he speaks to these two women that are at odds with one another within the church of Philippi. And it's interesting because he also mentions the fact that these are godly women. These aren't gossips These aren't people that cause trouble and are in fights with one another. He says, these are the same women that labored with me in the beginning. Now, you remember when Paul came to the area of Philippi, uh, it was interesting because they'd been trying to go all these different areas and, and go to different places, and the Lord kept shutting the door on them. And Paul received a vision of a man of Macedonia saying, hey, come up and preach the gospel to us. And so he goes, great, and he goes there, but he doesn't find a guy. Instead, he goes to this town of Philippi, and there by the river are a group of women. And he ministers to them, and one of them gets saved. You guys remember that story in Acts? She may have, these women may have been a part of that, that same group. And they labored with him for the gospel. They had a heart for the Lord. Yet some division has taken place. They're, they're at odds with one another. And so Paul says, I implore you. I'm begging you, is what he's saying. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Let the Lord be your common ground. It's, it would be another way of saying it. It's not, Paul isn't getting into it, and nor does he even exhort them to get into, well, what you said was wrong, and, and you should apologize, and you owe me this, and, and you should know that, you know, all the details. He says, be of the same mind. And again, that's where our stubbornness kicks in. And you know, over the years that I've been in ministry and all the different times I've sat in as, as an, you know, to try and bring some balance in, in a di- disagreement or an argument or marital problems, you know, it, it can be summed up as easy as this, is that everyone has that same thought. Yeah, hey, I want us to be of the same mind. And if they would just realize how wrong they are and how right I am, we'd be of the same mind. 
That's all it takes. It's that simple. They just need to realize they're wrong and that I'm right. Paul doesn't say that. He says, be of the same mind in the Lord. Jesus is our common ground. So there are things that we'll look at and go, you know, I don't quite agree with that. Or, or I don't believe that you did the right thing in that situation. But we can still meet at the common ground of Jesus Christ. And, and so the first mile marker that Paul points out here is that a healthy walk in the Lord and a healthy, thriving relationship within the church should be that those who have that kind of walk come to the common ground of Jesus Christ. And that there's a unity there. Church unity is something that I, I believe that people misunderstand in a lot of ways. You know, we get uh, different groups and different people, and they're like, hey, we're, we're promoting church unity, and don't you want church unity? And what are you going to say? Of course. You're like, yeah, church unity is great. Okay, so what we're doing is we're doing this program, and we're in charge, and we want all of your people to come out to it and, and everybody to help, and, and that's going to promote church unity. And we're like, oh, all right, you know, <laughs> that's fine. What we fail to see is that the church is already united in Jesus Christ. We don't need banners, marches, all those things. I mean, those have their place, and, you know, they can be assigned to the community that we are united or whatever. But the reality is we don't need to be united. We are united in Jesus Christ. We're united at the cross. We're united under the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we remember that, and we make that the focus, well, then we just realize that we're a family who's united. You know, I don't ever have to get together with my sister and my mom and go, hey, you guys, you know what? We need to be united. You know, we, uh, we need to be a family, and we need to prove that we're a family. We just are a family, right? And, and every family has problems. Every family has conflicts. Every family has got the crazy aunt or the crazy uncle or maybe multiple crazy aunts and uncles. It's a family. And so the church body is, is, is a family. And we're united. But I think that mile marker is, is remembering that and coming to unity. And Paul's saying, hey, I, I implore you to, to come back together to the common ground of Jesus Christ. But he also knows that they're going to need some help. And so he calls on this person in verse 3, the true companion. Now, this could be the pastor of the church. It could just be uh, somebody that Paul knows or somebody that's in ministry there. But he, he says, help these women. Again, not to sort out who said what and what the details were or who owes who an apology, but to be of the same mind in Christ. And, and I believe that that's kind of where sometimes the Lord calls us, is that we're called to, to mediate. We're called to be in the middle of a conflict to help and not to get distracted with all the details, but to bring them back to what the Word says. Hey, Let's come back to the Lord. Let's let him be our common ground. And let us be united. And they need help with that. They need to receive the help from this true companion. Um, the other thing that Paul says here that, that really goes along with that is, is that there, it requires perseverance, standing fast, that, that it doesn't always happen. There are times you want to work something out with someone, and they just don't want to work it out. You know, how do you reason with an unreasonable person? You don't. 
And, and that's a heartbreaker because you can look at it and go, man, I, I really want to work this out. And I certainly can see where I've done things wrong and, and I you know, forgive anything they've done to me. And I want that unity. I want to restore that relationship. And they're just like, no, that's it. I'm done with you. Well, the word gives us instruction on that as well. That as, well, as much as it depends on you to live at unity or to be in unity with one another. But it does require perseverance. And it, again, causes us to have to stand fast in the Lord. Both of these things that are, are being pointed to here, standing fast in the Lord, showing perseverance, and being of the same mind in the Lord. He's, that, he's the, the common ground. He's the important part of all of that, the most important part. Now, after this little brief correction or instruction that Paul gives, he gets into uh, verse 4, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You guys know Paul wrote this while he was under arrest in Rome, waiting his trial. And while he was not in the deep, dark dungeon at this point, uh, as he was when he wrote 2 Timothy, he was chained to a Roman guard, so he had no freedom. And um, so... He's got a lot he could complain about. He's held there unjustly, under false accusations, waiting a trial before a corrupt government. I mean, that's not a great place to be. Yet Paul, from that place, says, rejoice. Again, you know, let me say it again, rejoice in the Lord always. And I believe that this, well, unity, perseverance are mile markers. To me, this is one that I think is a huge mile marker. Joy that we are those that rejoice. And like Paul, not in circumstances, not in relationships, not in tangible things that we can set our hands on or point our fingers to, but in the Lord. That, that he's unshakable. He's immovable. He does, he's not up and down. Even the best relationships will be up and down. And the ability to re- rejoice is a huge marker of maturity in Jesus Christ. And I, I've been blown away by people over the years. I remember when we were in Southern Oregon uh, ministering there, and uh, this lady in the church, uh, Patricia was her name, and she had terminal cancer and, and was getting worse and worse. And our son, Seth, had just been born, and she loved babies, and so we took Seth over to her. And I, I remember she was weak. She's on all this, you know, uh, got all these monitors and everything hooked up to her. And yet, in that state, there was this joy about it. And I, and I remember, you know, we're trying to be encouraging. Patricia, how are you? And she's like, oh, I'm terrible. Look at me, you know. And she said, last night, I heard my heart monitor stop. And we're like, whoa. You know, what, you know, what do you say? And, and she goes, and I just went, oh, Lord, yeah, here I come. And, I, and I, no, again, we're not saying anything. And she goes, and then the stupid thing started back up again. And I'm still here, you know, and, and, and there, but there was this joy about her, and I thought, man, I want that. I want the rejoicing that she has in the Lord, and that if I were to hear my heartbeat stop to rejoice and go, here I come, Lord, I'm ready. Rejoicing in the Lord, and I'm not talking about the fake, painted-on, happy face that we can, that all of us can do, you know. Everything goes bad, and we're like, ah, oh, praise the Lord, <laughs> It's all going to work out for good in the end, I have no doubt. And inside we're just, you know, furious. But a true joy that we just go, well, you're bigger than that. 
I don't need to worry about these things. I don't need to be frustrated about these things. I can trust and, and have a, a deep, true joy in the midst of the trial, that the storm rages around us. You go, Lord, you're my sanctuary. You're my safety. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be afraid. I can rejoice. Now, he goes on from verse 5 to list some of the other mile markers. Um, and, I, and again, I believe, it, not necessarily that there's an order to these things, but I think they do kind of work off of each other. I think they, they start building upon one another as they go on. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men. And did I read that for? Verse, what did I say that was? Verse 5? Yes, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Gentleness. I think we get a wrong idea of what gentleness is. Uh, from our society and in our culture, gentleness very often is, is seen as weakness. You know, And even as we describe people, and I think it's worse for guys. You know, Guys, they describe another guy. And if you describe another guy as gentle, it is not a compliment. You're like, oh, yes, he's a very gentle person. You know? and, and what do you picture? You picture the skinny guy that's very fragile, and if you shook his hand too hard, you'd break it or something. And he's very gentle. You know? But the word that's used here isn't like that at all. In fact, it could also be translated patient. That the idea is that this is a person who has the ability to defend himself. This is a person that has strength. He has a power but he chooses to let the Lord be his defender. He chooses to not promote himself and not put himself before other people. He chooses to let the Lord be the one that handles his life and to be his protector. That's what this word gentleness really means. And then Paul connects that with the Lord's return being soon. The idea that while, yes, we could lose our temper and we could promote ourselves, we could make things happen, the Lord could be coming back today. How do we want to be found? Do we want to be found as a person that's, that's shoving our name out in front and, and pushing our way into the spotlight? Or do we want to be found in gentleness? The Lord's return is soon. And the Lord is at hand. And I, I just love the fact that Paul just kind of throws that out as, hey, if you need a little extra encouragement, how do you want to be found at the Lord's return? In verse 6, he says, be anxious for nothing. Nothing. That's hard. And, of course, we look at it and go, anxious for nothing. Again, I remember hearing this radio interview, and it was funny because I'm sure the lady was very sincere, but it reminds me of that happy face that I was just talking about that you paint on even when things aren't good. The interviewer asked her, so what do you do when you worry? And she goes, oh, I don't worry. I pray. And I thought, well, that's the right answer, but I'm having trouble believing. <laughs> it's easy to say. And it's so much harder to apply, isn't it? Be anxious for nothing. And we go, right on, Lord. I don't need to be anxious for anything. I know that. But then everything goes wrong. And we go, I I'm feeling a bit anxious. You know, over on our side, in our fellowship, we've actually been coming out of, of a, kind of a dark valley. Um, and it's one of those where you, over and over again we think, oh, we're just, we're just coming out of it. And then something else would happen. Uh, we're a small fellowship, and over the last three years, we've had several people in our fellowship pass away. 
And, and some of them we, we knew they were ill, and they, we kind of expected that. But one of the, the people to pass away was the guy that actually started the church. That wasn't me. He, he started a home Bible study eight years before we came. And Doug Glenn was just the pillar, man. The guy was such a godly man. And out of nowhere, he passes away. And it just rocked our church. And then another event happened, and another event, and over and over again, and we're just like, what, what is going on? And I would be absolutely lying to you if I said I wasn't anxious. It was terrifying. And it was a dark time. I mean, I found myself and, and others, uh, you know, it was depressing and sad. And, and not just for that one event, but like I said, it just seemed like there were many back-to-back. But yet, the fact of the matter is, while we do get anxious, we don't have to remain anxious. And that's really what this command is. You know, I think sometimes we look at it and we, we think that if, if we start to fear, we start to get anxious, oh, Lord, I'm sinning. It's what we do with it from there that makes the difference. Lord, I'm anxious, but I know I can lay it at your feet. Lord, I'm fearful, I'm doubtful, I, you know, I'm all these things, but I can bring it and I can lay it at your feet. And sometimes we just have to, it's like we sit in front of the Lord's altar and we lay it down and we take a step back and go, okay, it's yours. Oh, wait, that's mine again. No, it's yours again. And we just we do this. And that's okay. You know, the Lord's patient and he allows us to, to, to work it out. And, and it is important that we also understand that, that Paul isn't just saying, hey, here's a suggestion for you. Hey, if you, if you can be anxious for nothing, then try it. It really is a command. That, that Paul's saying, Look, you need to. This, I, I'm telling you, you've got to lay these things down. You can't just keep on letting them boil and boil inside of you. And we do, don't we? You know, we, whatever it might be. Maybe it's a, a relationship, a friendship, something. We just tend to dwell on it. We have that argument in our head. You know, I can't believe they said that to me. If they said, if they said that again, you know what I'd say? And then they'd come back with something like this. And then I'd tell them that, you know. This thing happened 10 years ago, and in my head, I'm still... And then it's about then someone else, hey, Jack, what? You know, whoa, all right, you know. But we just dwell, and, and that's the kind of anxiousness that he's speaking of here. That in the thought process, we're letting it build, we're letting it boil, we're letting it churn, and we, we like that. And we need to make the decision of, Lord, no, I'm going to lay it down at your feet. And then the promise that comes in verse 7 is ours, the peace that surpasses understanding. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding is ours. In other words, you can't explain the peace that the Lord gives you. You know, the world says you need to defend yourself, you need to push your way in, make yourself into the spotlight, whatever it is. And there's a peace that happens when you choose to not do any of that. When you choose the gentleness of the Lord, and you choose... To, to not be anxious, and you choose to lay those things aside, he lays his peace upon your heart. And it, it goes beyond reason, it goes beyond logic, it goes beyond all those things. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, again, not only is this a mile marker in our life, where are we at in that? We know where we were before Christ, we know how far he's taken us, but there's a lot further he wants to take us. The other thing that I think is important is that not only are these mile markers to us, these are mile markers to the lost around us. Right? 
that when the lost world looks at us, and they do look at us, they're looking to see if our God is real. I had a conversation just a few weeks ago with, with somebody in my community who's not a Christian. And he said, uh, man, I'm having a lot of trouble with this guy. And he's a Christian. In fact, I think he goes to your church. And, and he starts telling me all the things that are going on. And it broke my heart. Because what he was doing is looking at these mile markers in this other person's life. And he said, I don't see it. I just don't see it. And, and it broke my heart. And it started me thinking, what are the people around us seeing? You know, do they see people that are anxious and fearful and pushy and rude? Oh, but I'm going to church on Sunday. These mile markers are evident. They're like neon signs that hang over our head. And again, that can be something that, that oh, oh, I'm so bad, and we make ourselves feel guilty or whatever, and, and that's not the purpose, and that isn't what the Lord is, is saying to us here. I don't want anyone to, to walk away feeling guilty or ashamed, but I do think it should challenge us. What do people in our workplace, in our community, in our neighborhood see? And I believe that the words from a non-believer carry more weight in this case because the believer is always going to say something nice, right? Like you get a job recommendation, they call you, so is this person any good? Well, uh, they've got a great personality. You know, we come up with something positive to say. But I think especially when it deals with these things in our lives, the non-believer sometimes points out things a little clearer. And that's the challenge that, that, man... It has been on my heart for a while now. Is the reality of Jesus Christ, the personality of Jesus Christ, evident in my, in my life? Do, even if people don't know that I'm a believer, do they see a gentleness? Do they see a patience, a steadfastness? Do they see somebody that isn't pushing themselves and promoting themselves? Now, of course, we all have bad days. We all even go through bad seasons. But I, I believe we need to be careful and we need to be prayerful about what's being seen. Because these things also become very comfortable. We can be very comfortable in the negative things, right? Person, I know people that love to be anxious. They love it. And though they'd never say they love to be anxious, they love to be anxious. When, when they're anxious and worried about something, you can have a whole team of people around them going, hey, you know what? We can help with that. We can solve that problem. We'll work together. No, 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 that won't work. That won't work either. No matter what you come up with, it won't work. They don't want it solved because then they've got nothing to be anxious about. They've gotten so comfortable in being anxious, they don't want it removed. It's like taking a limb off. And so there's a danger for all of us to become very comfortable in these things. Now, what can we do, or what does the Lord want to do to keep us from getting comfortable, and better yet, just keep us from these things altogether? We're going on. Verse 8. And honestly, I don't know what time I started, so I don't know how... <laughs> Eric, what time did I start? Okay. Then we're going to start wrapping it up here. <laughs> so 
So verse 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are pure, just, whatever things, oh wait, I read that twice, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and have received and heard and saw in me, these things do. And the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state that I am to be content. I know what it is to be abased, and I know what it is to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. How can we be kept from getting comfortable in these things and falling into these negative things of complaining and striving, being anxious? Paul gives us very applicable, real-world instruction here. Of course, the first, he's already mentioned, to pray, lay these things, not be anxious, but through prayer and supplication, lay these things at the Lord's feet. But then he points to what I believe is in some ways, more of a challenge. Because we know we're supposed to pray, right? We know that whatever it is, we pray about it. And that's kind of our pat answer. But Paul then points to, really, what are you thinking about? What's on your mind? What are the things that your mind defaults to when it doesn't need to think about anything? Is it that argument? Is it the, the negative? Is it something else? Is it lust or greed or, you know, whatever those things that draw our attention when nobody is needing our attention. When our mind doesn't need to think about anything, what does it think about? Too often, it is on something that isn't of the Lord, if we're honest. And maybe that's just work, or maybe it's, it's something else. It, but Paul gives us the instruction that where our minds should be focused, even when it doesn't need to focus on anything, are the things that point towards the Lord's character. Again, the, the things that he brings out here, whatever is lovely, whatever is true, of good report, whatever is praiseworthy, you can have individual things. You can think about you know, worship at church or, or a song you really like. That all counts. But understand what he's really pointing to is the character of Jesus Christ. The only thing that's unshakable, the only thing that never changes, that is always praiseworthy, always beautiful, always lovely, it's the Lord. And letting our minds, choosing to let our minds focus on Him rather than upon ourselves, upon our stuff. I've found, and I don't know how to, to verbalize this clearly enough, but in all of my walk with the Lord, I have not had as much success in dealing with my struggles, my temptations, my things, than this right here. That it, it begins in the mind. And even Jesus said that, didn't he? That murder, where does it begin? In the mind. If you've hated your brother, you're a murderer. Why? Because that's, that's where every murder starts. If 
you've lusted, you've committed adultery. That's because that's where adultery starts. And that when our mind starts to go in that direction, to deal with it then and go, no, we're not thinking about that. To put the flesh under the control of the spirit and go, no, we're taking that thought captive and instead we're going to focus upon the Lord. And it, it tell you, it's, it's a hard habit to break because we're so easy, easily taken back into those same things that we, our minds have defaulted to for so long. But when we do, and we start to make that conscious choice of, no, I'm not thinking about that. I'm not going there. Instead, I'm replacing it with the things of the Lord. I'm going to think on those things that are lovely, that are praiseworthy, and whatever things are true and noble. Man, it puts everything else in line. It, it starts to change our direction. It changed our thought thought process. How much of what we do and how we act is determined by our focus and, and our thought process? You know, I remember when I was learning to snowboard. It's one of the things I missed about being in Hawaii. I used to love snowboarding. It was my release every year to go snowboarding in wintertime. But I remember when we first went, the guy that was giving me the instruction, he said, whatever you look at, you're going to hit. And I'm like, what? No way. Absolutely. And you're snowboarding. You're like, okay, there's one tree. It's in the middle of the run. I've got 100 yards on either side of it. And I could go right around that tree. But you're looking at the tree going, don't hit the tree. Don't hit the tree. Don't hit the tree. And you hit the tree. In the same way, our mind is our focus, right? What, what are we thinking about? That's what we're going to hit. That's where I'm going to end up. And so if I'm letting my mind be drawn away into the things that tempt me, guess what? I'm going to be tempted, and I'm going to fail. I'm going to fall. But to focus on the Lord, and I'm going to hit the Lord. I'm going to find myself at his feet again and again in a joyful worship of him, right? And again, this becomes evident in all of our lives. Not just for our own benefit, not just for our own walk, but the mile markers now become something that's obvious to the people around us. The Jesus that we serve, that we talk about, is real in our lives. His character is something that's coming through the aspects of our lives. And in that, we also find that we're content right where we are today. Paul says, it's, it's in focusing on the things about the Lord, I find that I'm content whatever my state. And it's interesting because in our culture, contentment's not a good thing. It, people talk about, well, if you want to be content with that, you know, it's the idea that you're, you're non-mobile, you're not moving forward, you're not growing, you're not, you know, everybody, whether in business or in, in community, you should be forward moving all the time, constantly, never content, never satisfied. That isn't the kind of contentment we're called to have. And neither are we to have a contentment that says, oh, I don't need to do, do anything. That's laziness. That's sloth, slothfulness. But what we're called to have, what Paul's speaking about here, is a contentment that says, Lord, all you've done for me is enough. I don't need to strive. I don't need to strain. I don't need to make things happen. I can be satisfied and content right where I am this very moment today. And if you never did anything to bless my life or to do, take me one step further, you've done enough already. You've saved me. But that contentment doesn't just leave us in that spot, right? Because from there, then we go, but Lord, if you want to do more, you can. So I'm content where I'm at, but I have a vision for where he might be taking me. 
And I know his character is to take us further, right? Those mile markers and moving us further down the road, deeper in our relationship with him. And so from a, it is a contentment that brings peace, and it is a contentment that just simply by our relationship will move us forward. And it's a constant, ongoing, growing relationship with the Lord. And we can be content in Him. Now, last thing, last part of the chapter here, we're just about done. Verse 15 says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but only you. For even in Thessalonica... You sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to the Lord. And my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Great, excuse me, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. And all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now Paul ends his letter mentioning the generosity that has come from this little town, of Philippi, from, I should say, the little church within the town of Philippi. And I believe that this is the other mile marker. While we see peace, gentleness, all the things that Paul has mentioned so far as important mile markers, I also believe a huge mile marker that shows us where we're at in our walk with the Lord is generosity. That we are giving to those who are serving. And we're giving to those who are in need. You know, Paul is ministering in a lot of different places. And he kind of brags on him here. He says, look, when I was ministering to this town, they didn't even help me. I wasn't even being supported by them. You guys sent aid to me there. In fact, you sent it twice. And, and now you sent it to me again. And, and I have found that, again, believers that are further ahead that you look at and you're like, that's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of Christian I want to be. I want to grow up to be them. Consistently, they are generous people. They're generous with their time. They're generous with their finances. They're generous with their gifts and with their home. There's just a hospitality about them. You know, I already mentioned Doug Glenn, the guy that we lost a few years ago. And it just, he embodied generosity. The guy was just constantly, he had time for everybody. And it blew my mind because he was a busy guy. He had his own business and, and always had lots of stuff going on. And somehow he, he always had time for everyone. I, mean, I could drop by his shop or go by his house. And he was like, hey, let's sit down. Let's have some coffee. And, and he just made time. And it was a huge testimony. And I guess this, I think this fits in as well as far as the mile markers and the things in our lives that the people around us see is that at his funeral, I've never seen this at, at another memorial service but it dugs person after person, people he knew 20 years ago to people he just had known a year, all got up and said the exact same thing. Doug Glenn was my best friend. Can you imagine that? 
that if at your funeral people got up and said, that was the best friend I've ever had. Generosity. Making time for others. Supporting those who are giving to the Lord. It's a huge mark. It speaks volumes to the people who are around us. And I'm guilty, man. I tell you, I'm guilty. I'm a person, I get caught up in my stuff. I get caught up in my agendas and, and busy in my life. And, and, uh, and I don't make enough time for people. And I'm convicted by that. That's something that I am praying and I know the Lord wants to change in me. Because whatever we give, He will give more. And I don't want to take that to the extreme that we see like the faith doctrine, you know, oh, give $1,000, you'll get a hundredfold blessing. You know, that's nonsense. But whatever you give, He's going to give you back what you need. The God of creation will never be in debt to you. So if you give Him your time, He's going to make sure you have time. You give him something of yourself, he's going to replenish that. And Paul tells him, man, what you've given me is generous. It's huge. And I know that my God can supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. He's not going to be in debt to you. He's going to give back more than you ever give. And that's a promise, you know. I believe that Doug understood that. Certainly Paul understood that. And that's why Paul could say, and this isn't about me. I'm not saying I need another gift I'm, or I'm saying that you guys should give more or other people should give more. I'm fine. I'm content. But I d- am concerned about the fruit that's given to your account. I want you guys to see God's generosity. I want you to see what God's able to do. These are the marks. And again, we can look at it and, man, we all have so far to go. But it isn't to be a discouragement to us. It isn't that we're to, we look ahead and go, oh, man, it's so far, it's so overwhelming. We should be encouraged. We should be challenged. Lord, I'm so glad we get to keep going down this road together. I'm so glad you, you're still at work in my heart and you still want to keep changing me. You don't give up on me. Man, what a huge thing that is. It'd be so easy for the Lord to go, Jack, that's enough, man. <laughs> I have tried and I've tried with you and you're saved, but, you know, I'm done. I'm going to put my attention on somebody else. But he doesn't. He's like, we're going to keep working on it. We're going to keep growing. These mile markers, he desires to do a great work in us. But here's what's required of us. We let him. That we would have humble hearts, soft to the moving of the Holy Spirit, receiving of the word of God. To say, yeah, God, I want to be gentle like that. I want that peace that passes understanding. I am tired of being anxious about everything. I'm tired about those hurts of the past. I'm tired of disunity within the body and that I have been a part of. God, work on me. Change me. Break me. Do whatever you need to do to get me to the the next mile marker, to take me further into my relationship and in my walk with you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how desperately each and every one of us need you. And God, we are such creatures of habit and such creatures that that love to be comfortable. But Lord, I pray you would interrupt our comfort, that you would challenge us and change us and, and draw us into a deeper walk with you. God, that we would not be dissatisfied with you, 
but we would be dissatisfied with our own reluctancy to follow you. God, you've blessed us. You have loved us. You have been so patient with us. And we know you have more. God, may we submit our hearts, submit our lives to you, that you would have your way. And that you would shine through our lives, that the people around us that don't know you, God, that they would look past us and that they would see you inside. And that they would be confronted with the love of Jesus Christ as, as we become a part of their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we end with the last couple of songs, what I'd like to do something a little bit uh, different. Is that If you need prayer for anything, anything at all, whether it's something we talked about today or just whatever's going on in your life, uh, I'm going to be over here on the side. And if uh, Eric, if one of the guys wants to come down and maybe cover this side, and uh, just as we worship, make ourselves available for prayer, okay? God bless you guys. We hope that Jesus is doing a work in your life from the message that you just heard. We would love to hear how you were impacted and what was impressed on your heart. Share your story by emailing connect at shorebreakchurch.com. And if you don't know Jesus as God, Lord and Savior, or you have more questions, send us an email to info at shorebreakchurch.com so we can get you dialed in with a free Bible and resources for your new relationship with Jesus.